From VOA, Press Conference USA, here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Our first special guest on this edition of the program is Congressman Mike Waltz, a Republican from the state of Florida. He is serving his second term in office, representing Florida's 6th Congressional District, located in the northeastern part of the Sunshine State. Congressman Waltz serves on the House Armed Services Committee, as well as the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Prior to running for office, Congressman Waltz had a highly decorated military career. A graduate of Virginia Military Institute, Congressman Waltz was commissioned as an Army Lieutenant before being selected for the Special Operations Force known as the Green Berets. His service as a Special Forces officer on multiple combat tours in Afghanistan, the Middle East, and Africa earned him four Bronze Stars, two with valor. Following his career in combat, Congressman Waltz worked as a defense policy director for the Pentagon and then a counterterrorism advisor for the George W. Bush administration. He currently serves in the National Guard and was promoted to the rank of colonel in 2020. He is also the first Green Beret to be elected to the United States Congress. And Congressman Waltz joins us via Microsoft Teams to discuss the national security and foreign policy challenges facing the United States. Congressman Waltz, welcome to the program. Thank you. Congressman, based on your priorities for the military and your distinguished military career, I would like to ask you first your thoughts regarding the Biden administration's approach toward supporting Ukraine against Russian aggression. We've seen recently really a more robust defense of Ukraine, rallying our allies, NATO, Europe, a contact group now being prepared. How would you assess the U.S. approach? Well, I think the approach from the United States standpoint is getting better. It's getting more robust. The administration has kept many of our allies on the same page in terms of an aggressive and robust response and support. However, I would put that much of our response in that category as a response. And we need to be very clear eyed that deterrence in this case failed. We did not deter through our diplomatic strategy and through the U.S.'s threats of economic sanctions, we didn't deter Putin. So much of this response, even though it is now bigger, more robust, more aggressive, is too late for the people of Mariupol, for the people of Kharkiv, and for so many others across Ukraine, and for the 5 million plus refugees that are now escaping the death and destruction. And it was certainly too late for the people of Bucha. My frustration has been, and this has been bipartisan frustration, we were out in Ukraine last year. And then the Ukrainians were practically begging the administration for the heavy weapons that are just now starting to finally flow, for the stingers, for the anti-ship missiles to defend their ports, and for the more sophisticated weaponry that they knew they would need to deter or defeat the Russian invasion. And time after time after time, their response from the Biden White House was, well, that would be too escalatory, that would be too provocative. That would be a little bit too aggressive. And and none of those things were provided before the invasion. I'm thankful they're being provided now. But again, I think it falls in the category of too little, too late. Others would criticize your particular response. On the other hand, it is an open question. But you're right that the Ukrainians were asking for more weapons early on. But we are where we are. And NATO seems to have really stepped up to the plate and many EU nations. But yes, go right ahead. I push back on that because we need to learn the lessons from deterrence. 
The peace is kept through demonstrating strength. And if we take the same response that many people are frankly patting themselves on the back for when it comes to, say, Taiwan, waiting until entire cities are leveled, waiting until, for example, Taipei uh, is bombarded to then demonstrate a tough and unified response uh, is not an acceptable strategy. We need to take a hard look at what didn't work here and apply that to other places around the world. Well, speaking of Taipei, let's look at China because the threat from China is very severe. And some are worried that perhaps because we are so concentrated on deterring malign actions of Russia in Ukraine and Europe. So what would your recommendation be to the administration regarding thwarting China's malign actions, particularly with regard to Taiwan right now in these early days? Well, we've seen that a domestic partisan resistance, as we're seeing in Ukraine, and that I do believe could apply to Taiwan, really matters. The kind of porcupine effect, make them too tough and prickly uh, to swallow. And that means we need to be giving, just as we failed to do in Ukraine, we need to be giving the Taiwanese the arms that they're asking for, the arms they need to defend themselves. It would be, I believe, a much more difficult situation to resupply across the ocean, You know, much more difficult than resupplying over land in Ukraine and Taiwan over the ocean after the fact. So I think that's a critical step. We need to, right now with inflation, we're looking at domestic defense cuts here in the United States. When you account for the 8% inflation, that's unacceptable. But the biggest piece is the economic ties. It is American taxpayer dollars that are essentially funding the Chinese military buildup through our capital flows, through the leakage of intellectual properties, through our universities and research centers, and the amount of money that we're allowing the Chinese Communist Party to raise on Wall Street and through other markets, and really clamping down on the unfair trade. And so I've been saying to my constituents, when you see Made in China, put it down. They have deliberately gobbled up and cornered the market on rare earth minerals, on pharmaceuticals, on things that we need for our economy to grow. We need to bring those supply chains back home. And I think we need a concerted strategy to do all of those things across the diplomatic, economic, informational, and military space. Congressman Waltz, a quick question on Afghanistan. Sure. Many people on both sides of the aisle had criticized the Biden administration for the manner in which we removed our troops. Uh, On the other hand, it was the Trump administration that did make a deal with the Taliban. President Trump reduced our troop presence to, I think, 2,500. Nonetheless, let's go forward. How do we, that is the United States and our allies, deal with this horrific regime, which is now going backwards on its words with regard to women and other policies in Afghanistan? We're seeing famine. What should be the United States approach in your view? Well, I was on the record as having some serious concerns about the Doha agreement. I never believed the Taliban would uphold their end of the bargain and the conditions that were in the agreement, and they didn't, whether it was agreeing to a ceasefire or serious engagement and peace talks with the Afghan government, which they refused to do. We can go down the list of things that the Taliban didn't uphold and therefore would have withdrawn from the deal, not felt beholden to that May 1st date, and I believe kept a small presence there as the military recommended to President Biden of our intelligence and our special operations capability to support the Afghan military as they continue to fight for their far from perfect but constitutionally elected 
the government. And the military has repeatedly been on record since then of saying that's what we should have done. And what I fear is that eventually we will have to go back again to deal with what is now a terrorist super state. The intelligence is clear that al-Qaeda and ISIS fully intend to attack the West, attack the United States again, and they're developing the capability to do so. My issue is, unlike when we fully withdrew from Iraq and then had to go back in to deal with the ISIS caliphate, we don't have any bases. We don't really have access from the ocean. Our local allies are being hunted down as we speak. And I think this terrorism problem hasn't gone away. They didn't get the memo that President Biden wanted the war to end. And in one way or another, we're going to have to go back to deal with it. That's one piece. The other piece is I think this is just an absolute moral stain on the American consciousness, how this was done, leaving fellow Americans behind, leaving our allies that stood with me as a Green Beret, that stood with so many veterans to fight for our flags and our values, that I will not give that cause up. Uh, We are still working with a number of the veterans groups to get those people out from an extraction standpoint. And then we're working on legislation to help them more effectively resettle here in the United States. So this is something that has bipartisan support in the Congress. I believe it was a moral and strategic debacle on the part of the administration, but we're not going to let it go and we're going to do everything we can to make it right. Congressman Waltz, turning briefly to Africa, Africa is now a playground for China and Russia. We're seeing the Wagner Group, this Russian mercenary group, being present in Mali, where we're seeing, you know, extremist groups on the rise. How can the United States thwart combat this very, very troubling trend? Sure. And, you know, great power competition with Russia and China isn't just in places like Ukraine or the Taiwan Straits. It's global. And we have to recognize that the competition for resources is also global, particularly in Africa, particularly when it comes to critical minerals, food security, and a number of other initiatives. I believe at the end of the day, the United States has to engage economically, more aggressively, and more strategically, and that we will also continue to put our values forward. We've seen a number of our African partners who tilted towards the seemingly great deals that the Chinese Communist Party was offering uh, are now coming back into the fold when they've seen that really what it is is debt diplomacy, where through the Belt and Road Initiative, the CCP offers loans that these countries can never repay, and they take as collateral airports in the case of Uganda or electrical grids or ports, and they do it with often brutal and inhumane labor policies, and they're devastating in their projects to the local environment. So I think we just diplomatically have to continue to put our values forward. We may not come to the table with bags of cash, so to speak, uh, although I do think we can more effectively help through debt financing and other types of economic initiatives to help these countries develop in line with our values and in a fair and responsible way. I think that's a sign for you to go to the floor, take a vote. Is that correct? Sorry about that. Congressman Waltz, Republican from the state of Florida, we thank you so much for your terrific insights on so many critical defense and foreign policy issues. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. You are listening to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. We've been speaking with Congressman Mike Waltz, a Republican from the state of Florida. I'm Carol Castiel. This is a reminder that our PCUSA podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash 
PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Now we turn to an interview with renowned historian, author, and staff writer for The Atlantic Magazine, Anne Applebaum. Tatiana Voroshko with VOA's Ukrainian service spoke with Applebaum via Skype on April 21st, shortly after she met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kyiv. And my first question is, you recently traveled to Kiev. You interviewed Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Can you share your main impressions from the trip and from your conversations? The main impression from the conversation is really how good Zelensky is at functioning in the modern world as a kind of anti-Putin, as a different kind of leader. We met him at his presidential compound late at night. And although, of course, there were a lot of procedures to get in to see him, when we finally walked into the room to meet him, there was no long table like Putin makes his guests sit at. There was no elaborate protocol. You know, he just walked in the room. He said, you know, hi in English. And he sort of sat down and complained, oh, my back hurts, something like that. And immediately the atmosphere was conversational and sort of normal. He's a normal person. He's not some big puffed up grand figure. And I think that is one of his great strengths. It's one of the reasons why people trust him. It's one of the reasons why people outside of Ukraine trust him as well, because he's seen as authentic. He's seen as genuinely brave. And he's seen as somebody who's not pretending to be something that he's not. You immediately see why he's been so good at being a spokesman for Ukraine during the war. Kiev, of course, was very strange for me because I was there in December when it was still a completely normal city. And seeing it now, people kept saying, of course, it was much worse a few weeks earlier. But even so, with the, so much is shut and so many shops are closed and restaurants are closed, that it's somewhat of a jarring experience. You know, but of course, again, what's impressive with the Ukrainians that you meet is how normal they are and how in the way that Zelensky's like, okay, I'm just a normal person in this strange situation. I'm fighting this war. That's what most of my Ukrainian friends are doing. They're saying, well, I'm the same person I was. I'm still going to make jokes. My life has changed dramatically in the last few weeks, but I'm going to keep doing my job and so on. So it's, it's very impressive to see how people are continuing to work and be productive and help their country during this time. During your conversation with Ukrainian president, did you find there was any particular message that he shared with you that he finds it difficult to communicate to the Western powers? There were two messages, really, in the conversation. One, probably the most important one, was something that he said several times, which is the feeling that the Ukrainians have that weapons aren't arriving fast enough and not in enough quantities, and they're not quite the right weapons. They've been given enormous amount of tactical weapons, which means things that you can use at short distances on a battlefield, like these famous javelins and stingers and in-laws, but they didn't have heavy weapons. I mean, literally a few days after he said that, more heavy weapons began to arrive from the United States. And so I think that his repetition of that wish. He said it and others have said it, you know, this feeling in Kiev that things aren't happening fast enough, that Washington's not moving fast enough. I think that did finally get through as a message. I mean, I even detect in Washington a difference between two weeks ago and this week. Um, I think there's been a kind of change in the last few days. And I don't know whether that's because of Zelensky's interviews or whether it's because of Pentagon assessments of what's going on in the battlefield. But this is now the, you know, the U.S. military's main concern is how to arm the Ukrainians, what to give them that will be most effective, and how to do it fast. And that process is sped up. That was Zelensky's main message. And then once again, 
he transmitted it in a form that all Americans can understand, in which he said, I have these conversations with presidents and prime ministers, and I feel that I'm repeating myself all the time. They ask me what I need, and I feel like, well, I told you yesterday what I need. You know, why am I saying it again? And the expression he used was he said, I feel like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. And this is, as you know, the famous movie where the same day happens over and over again. And this is a very effective way to communicate with Americans who have seen the movie and know exactly what he meant. So he was good at that. And then I would say his second message, which is also really important for people outside Ukraine to hear is a message about the nature of his country. You Ukrainians are a country of, you know, where the people speak multiple languages and they have different religions, but nevertheless, they're all part of a single state or a single community. And he's very much portrays himself as a kind of civic patriot rather than an ethnic nationalist. And I don't know if he thinks this explicitly, he uses that terminology in his head or not, probably not. But this is also very important and it's very effective. Changing the image of Ukraine, which is grounded in both very old stereotypes about ethnic nationalism, also more recent stereotypes about corruption. This is very important because for Ukraine to get Western aid and to win sympathy in Europe and America in particular, but also in the rest of the democratic world, it's very important that Zelensky use that terminology. And I say he's not doing it. It's not fake. In other words, I mean, he authentically believes it in part because he's himself Jewish and thus not an ethnic Ukrainian in the traditional sense. He's a very convincing messenger. You said that there was changing perception of Ukraine. Obviously it does. But can you kind of maybe summarize how the West looks at Ukraine differently now than it did maybe like before the war started? First of all, Ukrainian audience needs to know that most Americans before the war started could not find Ukraine on a map. You know, the fact that you now have big maps of Ukraine on television every night and television presenters talking about Kherson and Kharkiv and Kramatorsk is already a big change. You know, where is it? Who lives there? We have dozens of Ukrainian voices now on American television, not just Zelensky, but other politicians. Many MPs have been on television, other Ukrainian officials, the foreign minister and so on. And so just giving Ukraine some kind of reality has made a big difference. But also the bravery of the country, the fact that so many civilians are fighting, so many people join the territorial army, so many people went back to the country to fight. The fact that they expelled the Russians from north of Kiev and saved the capital city, which was supposed to fall in three days. I mean, this is one Ukraine, an enormous amount of respect. You can't quantify it, but it's the image of Ukraine as a kind of post-Soviet state, very corrupt and weak and disorganized, is now gone. And it's replaced by this idea that it's this country run by this amazingly brave, short Jewish guy and full of these brave people who are fighting against all odds, you know, David against Goliath, is transformational. We will never think of it in the same way again. And do you think Ukraine achieves its goal this way? Uh, like President Biden just announced another package of military defense. Do you believe the West is doing enough or close to enough to help Ukraine to resist the Russian invasion? It's funny, that's a question I've been working on trying to answer this week. It's not easy because perceptions in Kiev and perceptions in Washington are different. You know, in Washington, people work nine to five and they go home on the weekends. And in Kiev, people are on a 24-hour day schedule and are aware of, you know, that every minute and every hour in which they're not pushing back the Russians means terror and death for their civilians. So there's a 
definitely a different atmosphere, which I think is just inevitable. I also think that until the last week or so, Americans still weren't wholly convinced that Ukraine could win. And there was some doubt about whether, you know, these heavy weapons were necessary and so on. There's, as I said, it feels to me like there's been a shift in the last week and the decisions to give much more serious weapons have now been made. I should say from the American point of view, this is totally unprecedented. You know, Ukrainians should know that there has been no comparable American effort to help a foreign country that anyone I've talked to can remember since the Berlin airlift. This is, we're talking about the 1940s when the U.S. created this airlift when West Berlin was cut off by the Soviet Union, by Soviet troops. And that's the last time anything on this kind of scale was attempted. Maybe land lease during World War II, we also helped the British before America entered the war. But there is nothing in modern history like this. So it's all completely unprecedented. New ways of doing things are being worked out. New ways of getting stuff into Ukraine are being invented every day. You know, there's a lot of creativity involved in how to get stuff to Poland and then over the border and then into the battlefield. And so I understand that from Ukrainian point of view, it feels too slow and too unserious and it's never enough. From the American point of view, we've never done anything like this before. Nobody who's working in government now was working during the Berlin airlift. So for everybody, it's new. So I think both things can be true. One, on the one hand, it's not enough. On the other hand, it's more than America's ever done. (laughs) And so what I'm hoping is that in the next few days and weeks, the coordination becomes smoother and the help becomes more regular. In your book, Twilight of Democracies, you write about the appeal of a liberal world order and the state of democracy around the world. What did Ukrainians teach the people around the world about democracy? So one of the great sources of kind of culture war in the United States and in Europe over the last few years has been this sense that there's some kind of division between liberal values of openness and tolerance on the one hand and patriotism or nationalism on the other hand. And that these are somehow different and in conflict with one another. And one of the things that the Ukrainians have shown us is that you can be a militant, patriotic defender of a society that has liberal values and believes in tolerance. And that's one of the reasons why there's this bipartisan support for Ukraine. You know, in America, both Democrats and Republicans support Ukraine, which is, you know, it's like the first issue we've been unified around for a long time. And so I think that's been an important lesson. I mean, the fact that Ukrainians are willing to fight for something that so many people in Europe and the United States take for granted, I think has made a big impression on people. I mean, it's very hard to say right now what the long-term impact will be, because as the war changes and people's feelings about it will change too. But I do think the Ukrainians have set an example that has been very important for other people. If we move now to what's happening in Ukraine, do you believe that mass atrocities committed by Russian soldiers amount to genocide? And you are, you're an expert on that. I certainly think that the Russians are using genocidal language and there's genocidal intent. In other words, they intend to murder Ukrainians because they're Ukrainian. They aren't being punished for a particular crime. You know, they aren't soldiers. They're being murdered or eliminated because they're Ukrainian. So, yes, that shows the intention to commit genocide. What the scale of it will be, we don't know yet. But yes, I'm very comfortable with using that word. What makes Russia being so dangerous to Ukraine? It's interesting. I mean, the real question is, why is Ukraine dangerous to Russia? Why do the Russians 
fear the Ukrainians so much? It's an interesting question. I think partly because the two nations have been historically so close, they've been part of the same empires and they've had a long, deepened relationship. The Russians have had a kind of colonial presence in Ukraine for several centuries. I think for that reason, for the Russians, seeing Ukraine take a different path or make a different choice has always seemed very threatening. And so for Stalin, this was very threatening. You know, he feared Ukrainian national movement a lot. I mean, he feared it partly because it was an ideological challenge to Bolshevism, to Soviet communism, and partly because he saw what it had done during the civil war that took place after the Russian Revolution. Well, no, there was a enormous Ukrainian uprising in an attempt to establish a Ukrainian state. And this really frightened people in Moscow. It created the one real military challenge to the Bolsheviks, other than from the White Army. And it looked at one moment like, because of the Ukrainian rebellion, that the White Army would progress further into Russia and might even reach Moscow. So it was the one moment when they were really afraid of losing. And I think this stuck with Stalin. And he was always afraid of Ukrainian nationalism. And after collectivization in 1929, when there were these rebellions across Ukraine. He became even more obsessed with it, that these people can, not only that they were rebelling against leadership in Ukraine, but that it could have some impact in Russia. And I think Putin, in that sense, is similar in that what he's afraid of is the language of democracy and the desire to be part of Europe, which so motivate Ukrainians, he's afraid of that having some impact in Russia. Because, you know, if Ukraine could be an independent, democratic European state, then why can't Russia? And maybe Russians would see that. And so he does see Ukraine as this kind of existential threat to Russia. And he said this repeatedly in the last few weeks, that the existence of a sovereign independent Ukraine is somehow threatening to him personally. And of course, by Russia, he doesn't mean ordinary Russians. I mean, ordinary Russians would benefit from having a stable, prosperous neighbor which was incorporated into European systems and diplomacy because that would be good for Russia. I mean, then there would be more trade and so on. But his personal system of power, whereby he's the sole dictator and he is shored up by this massive propaganda state, you know, that is threatened by Ukraine. He perceives Ukraine's desire to be independent and its desire to be different and its desire to be European as a direct criticism and threat to his system of personal power. But it's not just Putin. The war finds a lot of uh, response in Russian society. A lot of people in Russia do support it. Yeah, no, a lot of people in Russia do support it. But in a society like Russia, there is really no such thing as public opinion either. You now have a system where the only news that anybody can legally receive is pro-war news. There is no independent media of any kind. Social media has been cut off as well. The Russian state has spent a lot of time thinking about how to get what kinds of messages to use to create the support for the war. And of course, it's illegal to be opposed to the war. So people who have said things against the war have been arrested. So it's very difficult to measure what people really think and feel if they really think and feel anything at all. I mean, for most people, I imagine it's the subject they don't want to touch or think about. It's too frightening. So basically, you don't see the other reasons that like historical reasons or reasons like deep in the Russian society that led to the war. So that's just the way to preserve the power. Well, no, I mean, you, you know, there is something deep in Russian society that has led to Putinism. Certainly, there's a part of the Russian elite that prefers that kind of political system. But I don't think any political system is inevitable. And I don't think countries are condemned always to be the way they are. I mean, countries can change and do change. 
and Russia could also change someday. And I want to leave open that possibility. I don't want to say that Russians are something that's wrong with them genetically or something about their culture is unfixable because I don't think that's how culture and genetics work. How much do you believe the fact that Russia derives a lot of its history from Ukraine, you know, we'll go back to Kivka actually contributing to this aggression? It's a popular position in Ukraine and in the West is almost unknown. You know, most of what Putin says about history is so strange and bizarre. I mean, I was completely unprepared for his comments about that Lenin invented Ukraine. Mm-hmm. You will all remember that from the first days of the war, that it's hard for me to know what he really believes about Ukrainian history and what other Russians believe about it. I mean, certainly there is the feeling that Kiev is somehow a Russian city, which belongs to them and is their origin city, does lie very deep in the Russian psyche. And explaining to them why that's not true is going to be a very important task for Ukrainians over the next hundred years. So one of the appeal of the Russia as a country to the far-right forces around the world, even in the democratic countries, is that they position themselves as defenders of traditional values. Right now, all of us can see that Russian soldiers torture, rape, kill innocent civilians in Ukraine. Do you think that Russia has lost its appeal and is losing as a result its allies around the world? I mean, certainly it's true that some of Russia's most prominent allies around the world are now distancing themselves from Putin. I would warn you, though, not just in Europe, but around the world, there will be people who go on supporting Putin and Putinism because they dislike Western democracy, because they dislike the United States, because some people on the left think that the war was fomented or created by NATO or by Americans. So I don't think that we've seen the end of pro-Russian sentiment around the world. And I would be very careful, in fact, about assuming that everybody now agrees about the causes of the war and about the role that Ukraine has played. That It will be very important for Ukraine to talk to people in Africa and the Middle East and Asia about the war when it's over, too. Hopefully the war does not last that long. We all hope so. We hope it ends soon and it ends with a great Ukrainian victory. Anne Applebaum, staff writer for The Atlantic magazine, speaking with VOA's Tatiana Voroshko. Press Conference USA on The Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Emma Wilcox and Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.